Chapter 3 Monsieur the Cardinal Poor Gringoire! The din of all the great double petards of the Saint-Jean, the discharge of twenty arquebuses on supports, the detonation of that famous serpentine of the Tower of Billy, which, during the siege of Paris on Sunday the 26th of September, 1465, killed seven Burgundians at one blow, the explosion of all the powder stored at the gate of the temple would have rent his ears less rudely at that solemn and dramatic moment than these few words which fell from the lips of the usher. His Eminence, Monseigneur the Cardinal de Bourbon. It is not that Pierre Gringoire either feared or disdained Monsieur the Cardinal. He had neither the weakness nor the audacity for that. A true eclectic, as it would be expressed nowadays, Gringoire was one of those firm and lofty, moderate and calm spirits, which always know how to bear themselves amid all circumstances. Stare in dimidio rerum, and who are full of reason and of liberal philosophy, while still setting store by cardinals. A rare, precious, and never-interrupted race of philosophers to whom wisdom, like another Ariadne, seems to have given a clue of thread which they have been walking along unwinding since the beginning of the world, through the labyrinth of human affairs. One finds them in all ages ever the same, that is to say, always according to all times. And without reckoning, our Pierre Gringoire, who may represent them in the fifteenth century, if we succeed in bestowing upon him the distinction which he deserves, it certainly was their spirit which animated Father de Bruel, when he wrote in the sixteenth these naively sublime words worthy of all the centuries. I am a Parisian by nation, and a Parisian in language, for Parisia, in Greek, signifies liberty of speech, of which I have made use even towards Monseigneurs the Cardinals, uncle and brother to Monsieur the Prince de Conti, always with respect to their greatness, and without offending any one of their suite, which is much to say. There was then neither hatred for the Cardinal, nor disdain for his presence, in the disagreeable impression produced upon Pierre Gringoire. Quite the contrary. Our poet had too much good sense and too threadbare a coat not to attach particular importance to having the numerous allusions in his prologue, and, in particular, the glorification of the Dauphin, son of the Lion of France, fall upon the most eminent ear but it is not interest which predominates in the noble nature of poets. I suppose that the entity of the poet may be represented by the number ten. It is certain that a chemist, on analyzing and pharmacopolizing it, as Rabelais says, would find it composed of one part interest to nine parts of self-esteem. Now, at the moment when the door had opened to admit the cardinal, the nine parts of self-esteem in Gringoire, swollen and expanded by the breath of popular admiration, were in a state of prodigious augmentation, beneath which disappeared, as though stifled, that imperceptible molecule of which we have just remarked upon in the constitution of poets. A precious ingredient, by the way, a ballast of reality and humanity, without which they would not touch earth. 
Gringoire enjoyed seeing, feeling, fingering, so to speak, an entire assembly, of knaves it is true, but what matters that, stupefied, petrified, and as though asphyxiated in the presence of the incommensurable tirades which welled up every instant from all parts of his bridal song. I affirm that he shared the general beatitude, and that quite the reverse of La Fontaine, who at the presentation of his comedy of the Florentine asked, Who is the ill-bred lout who made that rhapsody? Gringoire would gladly have inquired of his neighbor, Whose masterpiece is this? The reader can now judge of the effect produced upon him by the abrupt and unseasonable arrival of the cardinal. That which he had feared was only too fully realized. The entrance of his eminence upset the audience. All heads turned towards the gallery. It was no longer possible to hear oneself. "'The cardinal! The cardinal!' repeated all mouths. The unhappy prologue stopped short for the second time. The cardinal halted for a moment on the threshold of the estrade. While he was sending a rather indifferent glance around the audience, the tumult redoubled. Each person wished to get a better view of him. Each man vied with the other in thrusting his head over his neighbor's shoulder. He was, in fact, an exalted personage, the sight of whom was well worth any other comedy. Charles, Cardinal de Bourbon, Archbishop and Comte of Lyon, primate of the Gauls, was allied both to Louis XI, through his brother Pierre, seigneur de Bougeot, who had married the king's eldest daughter, and to Charles the Bold, through his mother, Agnes of Burgundy. Now the dominating trait, the peculiar and distinctive trait of the character of the primate of the Gauls, was the spirit of the courtier, and devotion to the powers that be. The reader can form an idea of the numberless embarrassments which this double relationship had caused him, and of all the temporal reefs among which his spiritual bark had been forced to tack, in order not to suffer shipwreck on either Louis or Charles. That Scylla and that Charybdis which had devoured the Duc de Nemours and the Constable de Saint-Paul. Thanks to heaven's mercy, he had made the voyage successfully, and had reached home without hindrance. But although he was in port, and precisely because he was in port, he never recalled without disquiet the varied haps of his political career, so long uneasy and laborious. Thus he was in the habit of saying that the year 1476 had been white and black for him, meaning thereby that in the course of that year he had lost his mother, the Duchesse de la Bourbonnais, and his cousin, the Duke of Burgundy, and that one grief had consoled him for the other. Nevertheless, he was a fine man. He had led a joyous cardinal's life, liked to enliven himself with the royal vintage of Chalouau, did not hate Richard de la Garmois and Thomas la Sayard, bestowed alms on pretty girls rather than on old women, and for all these reasons was very agreeable to the populace of Paris. He never went about otherwise than surrounded by a small court of bishops and abbés of high lineage, gallant, jovial, and given to carousing on occasion. And, more than once, the good and devout women of Saint-Germain-d'Auger, when passing at night beneath the brightly illuminated windows of Bourbon, 
had been scandalized to hear the same voices, which had intoned vespers for them during the day, caroling to the clinking of glasses the Bacchic proverb of Benedict the Twelfth, that pope who had added a third crown to the tiara, Bibamus Papaliter. It was this justly acquired popularity, no doubt, which preserved him on his entrance from any bad reception at the hands of the mob, which had been so displeased but a moment before, and very little disposed to respect a cardinal on the very day when it was to elect a pope. But the Parisians cherished little rancor, and then, having forced the beginning of the play by their authority, the good bourgeois had got the upper hand of the cardinal, and this triumph was sufficient for them. Moreover, the Cardinal de Bourbon was a handsome man. He wore a fine scarlet robe which he carried off very well. That is to say, he had all the women on his side, and consequently the best half of the audience. Assuredly, it would be injustice and bad taste to hoot a cardinal for having come late to the spectacle, when he is a handsome man and when he wears his scarlet robe well. He entered then, bowed to those present with the hereditary smile of the great for the people, and directed his course slowly towards his scarlet velvet armchair, with the air of thinking of something quite different. His cortege, what we should nowadays call his staff, of bishops and abbes invaded the estrade in his train, not without causing redoubled tumult and curiosity among the audience. Each man vied with his neighbor in pointing them out and naming them, in seeing who should recognize at least one of them. This one, the Bishop of Marseilles, Alaudet, if my memory serves me right, this one, the Primacier of Saint-Denis, this one, Robert de Laspinasse, Abbe of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, that libertine brother of a mistress of Louis the Eleventh, all with many errors and absurdities. As for the scholars, they swore. This was their day, their feast of fools, their Saturnalia, the annual orgy of the corporation of law-clerks and of the school. There was no turpitude which was not sacred on that day. And then there were gay gossips in the crowd, Simone Quatrelivre, Agnes Legardine, and Rabine Pierre de Beau. Was it not the least that one could do to swear at one's ease and revile the name of God a little on so fine a day, in such good company as dignitaries of the church and loose women? So they did not abstain, and in the midst of the uproar there was a frightful concert of blasphemies and enormities of all the unbridled tongues, the tongues of clerks and students, restrained during the rest of the year by the fear of the hot iron of Saint-Louis. Poor St. Louis! How they set him at defiance in his own court of law! Each one of them selected from the newcomers on the platform, a black, gray, white, or violet cassock as his target. Joannes Frollo de Molendine, in his quality of brother to an archdeacon, boldly attacked the scarlet. He sang in deafening tones, with his impudent eyes fastened on the cardinal, Capa repleto miro! All these details which we here lay bare for the edification of the reader were so covered by the general uproar that they were lost in it before reaching the reserved platforms. Moreover, they would have moved the cardinal but little, so much a part of the customs were the liberties of that day. 
Moreover, he had another cause for solicitude, and his mien as wholly preoccupied with it, which entered the estrade the same time as himself. This was the embassy from Flanders. Not that he was a profound politician, nor was he borrowing trouble about the possible consequences of the marriage of his cousin Marguerite de Burgoyne to his cousin Charles Dauphin de Vienne, nor as to how long the good understanding which had been patched up between the Duke of Austria and the King of France would last, nor how the King of England would take this disdain of his daughter. All that troubled him but little and he gave a warm reception every evening to the wine of the royal vintage of Chaillot, without a suspicion that several flasks of that same wine, somewhat revised and corrected, it is true, by Dr. Quatier, cordially offered to Edward the Fourth by Louis the Eleventh, would, some fine morning, rid Louis the Eleventh of Edward the Fourth. The much-honoured embassy of Monsieur the Duke of Austria, brought the cardinal none of these cares, but it troubled him in another direction. It was, in fact, somewhat hard, and we have already hinted at it on the second page of this book, for him, Charles de Bourbon, to be obliged to feast and receive cordially no one knows what bourgeois, for him, a cardinal, to receive aldermen, for him, a Frenchman, a jolly companion, to receive Flemish beer-drinkers, and that in public. This was certainly one of the most irksome grimaces that he had ever executed for the good pleasure of the king. So he turned toward the door, and with the best grace in the world, so well had he trained himself to it, when the usher announced in a sonorous voice, "'Messieurs, the envoys of Monsieur the Duke of Austria!' It is useless to add that the whole hall did the same. Then arrived, two by two, with a gravity which made a contrast in the midst of the frisky ecclesiastical escort of Charles de Barbon, the eight-and-forty ambassadors of Maximilian of Austria, having at their head the reverend father-in-god Jean, abbot of Saint-Bartin, chancellor of the Golden Fleece, and Jacques de Goy, sieur d'Aubie, grand bailiff of Gant. A deep silence settled over the assembly, accompanied by stifled laughter at the preposterous names and all the bourgeois designations which each of these personages transmitted with imperturbable gravity to the usher, who then tossed names and titles pell-mell and mutilated to the crowd below. There were Master Louis Reloff, alderman of the city of Louvain, Monsieur Clay d'Atouet, alderman of Brussels. Monsieur Paul de Beust, Sieur de Vormazel, President of Flanders, Master Jehan Colligans, Burgomaster of the city of Antwerp, Master Georges de la Muer, First Alderman of the Quare of the city of Gant, Master Geldof van der Haag, First Alderman of the Parches of the said town, and the Sieur de Beerbeck, and Jehan Pinnock, and Jehan de Marzel, etc., 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 bailiffs, aldermen, burgomasters, burgomasters, aldermen, bailiffs, all stiff, affectedly grave, formal, dressed out in velvet and damask, hooded with caps of black velvet, with great tufts of cypress gold thread. Good Flemish heads, after all, severe and worthy faces, 
of the family which Rembrandt makes to stand out so strong and grey from the black background of his night patrol. Personages, all of whom bore, written on their brows, that Maximilian of Austria had done well in trusting implicitly, as the manifest ran, in their sense, valour, experience, loyalty, and good wisdom. There was one exception, however. It was a subtle, intelligent, crafty-looking face, a sort of combined monkey and diplomat fizz, before whom the cardinal made three steps and a profound bow, and whose name, nevertheless, was only Guillaume Rhyme, counsellor and pensioner of the city of Ghent. Few persons were then aware who Guillaume Rhyme was a rare genius who, in a time of revolution, would have made a brilliant appearance on the surface of events, but who, in the fifteenth century, was reduced to cavernous intrigues, and to living in mines, as the Duc de Saint-Simon expresses it. Nevertheless, he was appreciated by the miner of Europe. He plotted familiarly with Louis XI, and often lent a hand to the king's secret jobs all which things were quite unknown to that throng, who were amazed at the cardinal's politeness to that frail figure of a Flemish bailiff. End of chapter 3